0: Welcome back to JW Forwardcast, the show that helps former Jehovah's Witnesses and former members of other high-control groups and religions to rebuild their lives, take back control of their destinies, and become the people they were always meant to be. So we've got something a little different for you on today's episode, because I'll be speaking to Obed Omar and Dean, hosts of the Heretics Corner podcast. We discuss their experiences leaving the religion of Islam. We talk about how they came to realise that their faith was not what it claimed to be, and the challenges faced by ex-Muslims in terms of leaving that faith behind. As you'll hear, there are some aspects of the ex-Muslim experience that really mirror the ex-JW one, and some that are very different. We also discuss the importance of aftercare for apostates, and the need for a wider effort to address the needs and challenges that apostates from all faiths face. But first, a little housekeeping. I just want to thank everyone who's been uh, leaving us reviews on iTunes and star ratings. Um, And just a little reminder that if you leave us a written review on the iTunes uh, podcast store, I will read it out on the forwardcast even if it's a really insulting and terrible review. I'll probably still read it out for a laugh. So if you like the cast, head over to iTunes and give us, um, give us a star rating or a review, or give us a thumbs up on whatever podcast app you use to listen to us. That really helps us rise through the rankings and helps other people find the show, and it's an easy way you can help support what we do. Speaking of supporting what we do, here's a shout-out to our new supporters on Patreon. A huge thank you to... John Ledger and Across Apostia, thank you so much for your support. It really is massively appreciated. Uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to all of my very kind patrons, who some of whom have to remain anonymous um, for obvious reasons. I mean, reasons I very much understand because I have to remain anonymous as well due to Watchtower's shunning policy. Uh, and also, just a quick note to say that if you've um, pledged to support me on Patreon, but I haven't read you out yet, that's because I've sent you a message asking if it's okay to use your name on the Forwardcast, and I never use a name without someone specifically saying, yes, you can use it. So if there's a disconnect, check your inbox, because there might be a message from me there saying, is it okay if I use your name? Okay. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's get on to today's Forwardcast episode. I bring you Obed and Dean of The Heretic's Corner. Hey everybody, and welcome back to JW Forwardcast. On today's show, we're going to step outside the world of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and into the wider world of apostasy from all faiths. My guests today are Obed Omar and Dean, the hosts of the show The Heretic's Corner, Heretics Corner is a podcast on YouTube that focuses on the issues that apostates face. Much like the Forwardcast, they talk to other apostates about issues and challenges that they faced when splitting from a faith that had previously defined their lives. The goal is to gain insight into how exes from all faiths can rebuild. Their previous guests have included Yasmin Mohammed, Sarah Hader, and, well, me. I managed to sneak an appearance on the as well. Obed and Dean are both ex-Muslim, and so have an experience that in some ways tracks the experiences of ex-JWs, but also has significant differences as well. Obed, Dean, welcome to the Forwardcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having us on, Covert.
0: So I just want to first of all give a shout out to this, because this is a, a three continent um, show. We're coming to you at different parts of the world, which means that Obed is actually sat there with coffee at four o'clock in the morning. So I just want to suit his, uh, salute his professionalism and his ability to get out of bed at that time.
1: Yeah, well, legacy of a misspent youth. <laughs> <laughs> so guys,
0: welcome to the show. First of all, thanks ever so much for doing this. And it's a pleasure to invite you into my house after you so kindly invited me yeah, into it's, yours. It's,
2: yeah, it's really nice to be on. Um, it's a really good opportunity for us to talk about you know, things from an interfaith perspective
0: yeah, interfaith, kind of inter-ex-faith.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean
0: ex-interfaith. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So perhaps we could start by, if you could just tell us, maybe if we start with Obed and then, and then go to Dean, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into your faith in the first place and then how you started to realize it wasn't true and yet you had to leave?
1: Okay, um, well, I was born into a Sunni Muslim family. And uh, I was born in India. My family moved to Canada when I was six. I was always really inquisitive as a kid. Asked questions about every little thing. And if it didn't make sense to me, I would break it apart. Around at the age of 11 or so, the original Cosmos came out um, on TV. My dad loved documentaries and science documentaries and stuff. So we sat down and we watched it. And then... My natural inquisitiveness then listening to Sagan talk about the scientific method and how to be curious and how to look for evidence um that just struck a chord with me and it sparked something in me and then later that year like that was just before school started and when school started um, i was in the sixth grade and they had a general science class you know just kind of covered everything it was just to get you introduced to introduce science and they talked about the sun going nova in five billion years so i came home i asked my parents about that because they talked about the day of judgment and i said well you know you guys talk about the day of judgment and you're talking about all this stuff and then and that could happen at any time but they're saying the sun's going to die in five billion years and burn the earth up and they try to tell me well that's one and the same thing and you know no 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 you know like it's day of judgment and, and the you know the sun going over the same thing because the quran's predicted all that it didn't make any sense to me and just slowly from 11 to 16, when I just finally couldn't believe it anymore, just taking basic science classes in middle school and high school. So, you know, you're not really going in depth at anything, but you're learning about the scientific method. You're learning about how to get evidence, how to like ask for evidence. And everything that I was being taught, they were showing the evidence for it. But then things like in the Quran, you know, they're just things you're told. I mean, you're told about Muhammad's flooding the moon, but no one had seen it him flying to the moon on a winged donkey with the face of a man and the tail of a peacock and you know and then he had to fly from mecca to jerusalem then go from jerusalem to the moon because apparently there's not a direct burak from mecca to the moon um so it was just all these little things and it just it didn't make sense and so at 16 i just said i mean it was just slowly eroding away and by 16 it was just there was nothing left of it And I kept it to myself until 22. I mean, I was 16. I wasn't sure what my parents were going to say. And I mean, we'd always be taught. I mean, one of my friends, was his family was atheist. And my parents, they were close friends of ours. My parents were friends with his parents. But when they talked about them being atheists, there was like this disdain in their voice about how they couldn't believe in God. So, you know, I was careful to kind of keep it to myself. But even then, by the time I told my folks, I'd given up all pretense of religion, like during Ramadan and stuff, we'd go to family gatherings or friends of family, whatever. and People would pray, and i just stopped praying and little things like that. So by the time I told my folks, they knew something was up. It was, you know, a long, drawn-out conversation over a few days, and there was a lot of yelling and screaming and crying and, you know, accusations and this and that. That's one thing I'll say, though. Like, my parents were always devout, but they were never fundamentalists. Eventually, they accepted Like, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. When we first moved to Canada, uh, some people from the mosque came to visit our house. There's only one mosque in Montreal at the time. And it was something that they would do. They would go through the phone book every year when the phone book came out. So this is back in the 70s when they actually had phone books. Um, and they, looked, and so they would look for Muslim-sounding names or Arab-sounding names. And then they would just go knock on your door. And, to, and was, this was basically to tell you how to be a better Muslim. So, But they came, knocked on our you – know, they, they buzzed our apartment – I answered. They said, oh, we're here for the mosque. We're taught to respect the religion and everything. So I let them in. They knocked on the door. I told my parents they're coming up. My dad invited them in, you know, offered them tea, something to eat. And they're talking. And within about, and I, this, is, you know, this is going back to a memory from when I was six. I'm 49 now. so, But it, it seems like it was about 15 minutes or so. And my dad was literally throwing them out the door. And my brother and I were looking at each other like, what the hell is this? What, what's he doing for the mosque? And then my dad sat us down and he told my brother and I, he said, what those guys did was wrong. He said, you know, it's up to your mother and I to teach you and your sister what Islam is, teach you the faith, teach you the fundamentals of it, teach you how to practice it. But once you're an adult, that's between you and your God. He said, it's up to no one else, but, but you to decide how to practice your faith. And he said, these people have no right to come to my home and tell me how to practice my faith. So, like I said, my you know my parents were devout but never fundamentalist in that, and you know my dad wanted us to learn how to think. Like I said, he loved science programs; he, he watched them with us and things like that. So when I told them, I said, there was a lot of yelling and screaming, and why are you doing this? And blah blah blah. And finally, it came down to do what you feel is best for yourself, but don't be public about it. And my reaction to that was first I said, you yeah, know, well you're you're more concerned about your reputation than my immortal soul, apparently. And the second was, I'm not okay, fine, I won't go screaming from the rooftops, but if someone asks, I'm not going to lie. And that was a compromise I had. And now this was all, like I said, this was, I was 22, so this is the 80s. uh, Or maybe the early 90s now. I have to to do my math. Uh, So it's not, uh, there's no social media, there's no, you know, the internet was just starting. You know, you could have dial up or whatever. Uh, So, it wasn't like now where you could put on a Facebook page or whatever, and they can find you out, you know people can find out or anything like that. It was just and so my family slowly started started finding out, and I didn't have any issues within my family except some distant relations who I'd never even met before, so that was about it like that was it wasn't like a hard, long struggle for me. it was just more. know as i was questioning like like i said from 11 to 16 just give you another example when i started fasting usually start fasting around 11. um, i think i started fasting that year maybe i was 12 and it was the middle of summer and i was outside playing with my friends all day and like like i said you're questioning certain things but you're still going along with it and it was still like at the start of me questioning but at the end of that day before the sun went down i was i was exhausted montreal gets hot in the summer and very humid And we'd been playing outside all day, like, um, you know, football, baseball and everything. And there was a water fountain in the park and I went and took a huge drink of water. And then I realized what I'd done, that I'd broken my fast and I was so devastated. I mean, I went home, hid myself in my room and I was terrified. And I was crying. Um, you know, I never told my parents what I'd done because I thought they were going to be freaking out. But like I said, it's it's, it's those little things that as you're starting to question, you don't know what's going to happen. You, you're you just worried about it. One thing I was actually never worried about was hell. Well, I was for up to a point, but around 14 or so, my mom told me something that I was like, oh, really? I don't worry. And she said, okay, Muslims will go to hell if they sin. They'll work off their sins and eventually end up in heaven. So I'm like, okay, uh-huh. so... Eternity will be in heaven and hell could be a billion years, but eternity will be in heaven. So well, what so do I have I'm to balance You're still winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean it lessened my fear of hell. You know, it's it's those kind of little things. Like especially when you're younger, you don't know what your parents, you know. Mm. You know, at sixteen, they call my folks and they you know, don't know where I would have ended up or what I would have you know what would have happened. So yeah, like I said, that was basically it. There's a difference between what's going on now and what's going on, what what was going on in the '70s. Like I said in the '70s there was only one mosque in Montreal, or maybe there was two—one for Shia, one for Sunni—and so there was, and there wasn't a huge population. Also, the population that was migrating from other countries at that point, like Pakistan, wasn't as fundamental. Like my mom was uh, born in India, but raised in Karachi. My dad was born and raised in India. India was never as fundamentalist as Pakistan has ever gotten. Um, you know, some ago, and Pakistan wasn't quite that bad back when my parents were growing up. Um, also, another thing back then was they had a British-style education. Um, I mean, in 72, Pakistan passed a law where it had to be an Islamic education. Um, India still, you know, for, for the longest time, they kept that British-style education. They're moving slowly away from it um which is fine. Uh, but you know so my par- my dad went to university in London. You know my parents read the classics. They read you know like I said they so coming to Canada was coming to another commonwealth country. They had certain things they could share. Uh, and so it wasn't as bad then as it is now. Like now it's they're coming from a more fundamentalist tradition of Islam now than they were in the 70s or even in the 80s. I would think, like, starting in the 90s or so, mid to late 90s, that's when the more fundamentalist stuff started coming in.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like that everywhere, especially in the West. Um, But it really is everywhere where, you know, especially post 9-11, there's been this revival of um, Islamic identity. Mm. In, in 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 a sense but I don't, I don't know I'm I'm only 25 like <laughs> I I didn't live through the 80s or the 70s like it's always sort of been this way for me and I grew up in Saudi Arabia as well so, oh, so you, <laughs> it's always been fairly strong so mo- go. Mo-
0: moving into that Dean I mean can you can you tell us what that was like to kind of grow up in Saudi Arabia and, and then to have that that kind of dawning awakening that you you didn't believe the faith anymore
2: yeah um well to be honest uh yeah, I did grow up in Saudi Arabia. I grew up in, um, I don't know if, if your viewers would know this, but Saudi Arabia is essentially the birthplace of Islam. It's the heartlands of when Muhammad um, really had his revelation. It was all in sort of Western Saudi Arabia. And so um, it really is one of the most conservative regions in the world, not just for Islam, but but in terms of like any religion, like it really is one of the most strictly controlled regions. And so I I ended up seeing a lot of injustice, a lot of hate preaching from imams growing up. It it was, it was a country that felt suffocating uh, in, you know, cause I would see things from the West. I would see my cousins who some of them were non-Muslim because my mom was a convert. I'm I'm more like my my mom's cousins, (laughs) but I call them my cousins. Um, and uh, they live much more sort of egalitarian lives, even though it's sort of what the average Westerner would think of as fairly normal, fairly average. I saw the, the difference between, you know, for example, gender segregation, just the way that they saw the world, you know, mm. they might have been religious themselves. Like a lot of them are very religious Christians, but they didn't hate anyone. They didn't really, you know, they, they welcomed us into their houses. Whereas my parents the sheikhs especially in saudi arabia because they had zero exposure to non-muslims zero exposure like this is a country with like i don't know probably like 95 96% muslims mm. uh, and the and the the minority that aren't muslims are temporary workers who come there get paid and then they kick them out. Like they never really allowed to become Saudi citizens. Mm. So the culture is just so um, unicultural that the imams just preach hatred with no. Or they used to preach hatred with with, with no uh, remorse or judgment. And so growing up in that environment, I, I, it was obvious to me that that the conflict between Islam and the West wasn't as straightforward as my parents made it out to be. In terms of you know the West is evil. Look at them. They're bombing. Um, all these Muslim countries, they they have such greed, they have such decadence, you know, a big thing my mom would say is, look at them, the clothes that they wear, it's so revealing, they have no modesty. And a lot of these things sort of, they had like half points in my head, you know, like, mm. you know, the, the West does wage war, the West does have, you know, a lot of people have issues with the capitalist system mm. or, or whatever it is. But the way that they framed it was that Islam is the, the logical alternative. So mm. growing up, that really was kind of how I saw it. It was either Islam or the West. It was Islam or atheism, yeah. in a way. Because my mom was a Christian as well, um, she sort of explained away Christianity to me. So that wasn't a, really an option. Uh, uh, okay. With the Trinity, so, so not really making so sense. So she
0: used to be a she used to be a Christian,
2: but then she became yeah, she Muslim, converted um, when she was fifteen, I think, um, because uh, actually her parents converted to Islam. Because they were testing out different religions. Uh, and then they converted to Judaism. And then, you know, they converted to Catholicism, I think. Um, and I think that's where they stayed for most of their lives. Okay, um, My grandparents. Yeah, And my mom was just like, no, I'm staying with Islam because I think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, then she met my father and they got married. <laughs> Which, by the way, they didn't get married in the halal way. <laughs> I always found that a bit uh, controvert, like a bit hip- hypocritical. Mm. That... They held us to these standards where we can't talk to girls. But clearly, my dad and my mum would never have met if they <laughs> if they followed those rules yeah. and um, waited till their parents gave them permission for marriage. It's kind of like,
0: it's kind of like when your parents are telling you not to smoke whilst they're kind of puffing on twenty cigarettes a day, sort of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saudi Arabia was maybe the first ten years of my life, um, and really the main thing i wanted to say about that is i that's where the doubt started to form that's where my personality started to form as well and my personality was very much in like clashing with that mm. typical conservative religious and masculine in a way uh, mentality because you know i was kind of a nerd growing up <laughs> i had i had glasses since i was like three years old (laughs) so i was a target for bullies throughout my life and by the time i was seven i had been beaten unconscious and hospitalized and you know i I was just terrified and traumatized Mm. um but from an islamic perspective like my parents just couldn't wrap their head around the things that i was talking about in terms of this this type of fear of talking to people this fear of just being around people especially men Mm. and boys who who were being sort of violent or yes so so i learned very early on that i had that I wasn't a big fan of violence, hatred, intolerance, or you know, demonization of people who don't fit the standard yeah. mold. And to top it all off, like I said, because we were Muslim males growing up in Saudi Arabia, even as kids, they tell you that when you're seven years old, you become an adult, which is an exaggeration. Even Islamically, that's not true. <laughs> it's when you hit puberty, when you when you start to um, okay. You know, for women, it's menstruation. For men, it's basically wet dreams. <laughs> um, but, but they told us we had to pray five times a day. And I that my anxiety just did not fit with the mosque environment. Mm. It was people speaking Arabic all day. And when they did speak English, like I said, the sermons at the mosques were horrible. Mm. To give you an example, like I used to read so much. And I found that while most good books uh, make sure to hook you in at the be- beginning, setting up characters and settings, the Quran was kind of just this babbling mess. And all these things started to add up. For example, one of the things that I remember picking up on, and this was without any influence from Western criticism. Like, I'd never seen Western criticism of Islam. I'd seen maybe Fox News talking about Muslim countries. Mm. But, you know, when I was reading the Quran in English, you know, I'd, I'd memorized like a big section of it, like the first chapter of it but in Arabic. And I started to read it in English. One of the first surahs I read it just didn't seem like something from the creative of the universe. Um, mm. It's a very short surah, so I'll just, I'll just uh, explain what it was. It's, uh, which in English means, may the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, and ruined is he. His wealth will not avail him or that which he gained. He will enter to burn in a fire of blazing flame, and his wife as well, the carrier of firewood. Around her neck is a rope of twisted fiber. And, you know, I, I naturally, I was like, "Wow, this this seems really hateful. Mm. This seems really violent. This seems, especially towards a woman in particular." And I sort of knew what the story was talking about, and it seemed kind of fishy. Um, to give you some context, Abu Lahab was well, he didn't really exist. It was a nickname. Mm. It, it means "father of fire" in Arabic, and it's basically a cuss phrase from Muhammad to one of the leaders of the city he grew up in, okay. who um, that leader rejected his religion. And in particular, it, it's really pathetic because that leader was Muhammad's uncle. Like this is basically a domestic dispute oh. that is presented in the Quran as though it's, you know, this giant villain, this this truly evil, like a warlord or something, like, like you know, Pharaoh and Moses, like that kind of yes. conflict. But it's really just Muhammad's uncle who disagreed with him. And he had slaves and he mistreated them a bit. It really wasn't anything like, for example, what Muhammad himself became later on. It was far worse than what this man ever did. And so as a kid, like, I really picked up on that. And I really had a lot of time to think about it because I spent a lot of my time in the library because I was so afraid of the kids who would beat me up. Like, I remember thinking, like, I get called nicknames and all these immature kids, they call people nicknames and... Here God is calling this guy a nickname. Like, you know, yeah. Abu Lahab, your, your father of fire. You will burn in hell. Like, you know, it's just pathetic. Yeah. It's clearly, it, it, it kind of worried me. Like, what if this isn't true? Little things like that really built up, you know, misogyny towards women. But I never really said anything because of the shame of disappointing my parents and the fear that what if I was wrong? You know, there's, I, remember, I think I told my parents once and they came up with Pascal's wager. which okay, is like like you know, yeah. if, if you're wrong then you lose everything. If you're right, you gain nothing. And in Saudi Arabia, that was absolutely true. I gained yeah. nothing <laughs> by denying God. Um, especially as a child, like I was going to have to memorize Quran and do all those things anyway. Yeah. So I, I really tried to, to stick to faith and, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but my father had serious problems. Even when I tried to stick to faith, he was never convinced by it. Um, you know, I talked about this I think I've talked about this in the podcast. How once he used to hit me for for not praying, because even though I had prayed, he hadn't seen me praying. Mm. And so what I would do is pray in his room. And then he like w- one time I was praying in his room, and he got out the belt and waited for me to finish my prayers. And while I was praying, I remember like with my head on the ground, begging Allah, please, please, just stop this madness. Guide me towards whatever I have to do to stop this, all this pain from these kids were beating me up to um you know my father who's violent who who just never happy with anything that i do and of course after i I finished my prayer nope my father just beat me up saying you're only praying in my room from so that i can see you for my sake not for allah which isn't even true by the way Mm. like i was doing it for both those things um you know i i did sort of i did have a lot of faith in god like i wasn't an atheist at the time Mm. um I wasn't sure what God was, uh, but anyway, eventually, when I was 10, I moved to Australia. While I was in Australia, I got involved in the local Muslim community. I'm not going to name, name the community, but it's a very tight-knit group of Muslims who were focused on catering to young Muslims uh, and the perception of traditional Islam uh, and sort of reconciling the two, and they really did a good job of doing it. Um, I think it was especially good because the Sheikh was a Sufi, and he was like a really... Really, um, stuff for where Sufi as well. Mm-hmm. So Sufis are, are more like spiritual Muslims. Mm-hmm. They're not so focused on the, the harsh, traditions and sticking to things. They're more like mystics mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so I, I truly fell in love with that Muslim community, and I tried to follow the the path of Muhammad to the Athmos because they had presented this. This positive Islamic environment that I had been begging God to show me, like, you know, guide me my whole life. Mm. I felt it was my duty, despite still having so many doubts. I felt like it was my duty to to um, give it, like, like really give it my all. And I should mention at this point that my father had donated the land next to our house to be built into a mosque. Mm. Pretty much every weekend and holiday, my, my brother and I would build fences, dig foundations, move bricks, pave um, you know we were always working at the mosque a huge part of our teenage years was laboring for the muslim community like literally physical labor mm. um from like 12 to like you know i still kind of do it today but despite that my father still wasn't convinced he he was paranoid or maybe maybe he saw what was th- that my personality conflicted with the religion maybe he just he just predicted that i would never really go along with the faith and mm-hmm. so he would still call me nicknames like kafir which means like you know non-believer and things like that And he would accuse me of having low faith uh and telling me that i should fear Allah I'm more like my cousins who you know they were very um proactive in speaking about islam mm-hmm. and like whereas i was more timid and you know like i said anxious you know it's only recently that i've really gotten over my my speech difficulties mm-hmm. to, to some extent so like growing up in high school uh there were so many issues um, in the in the Muslim, even in the, that so-called you know perfect Muslim community, mm. there were a lot of issues. Um, in in particular, I was very passionate about science and biology. Basically, at the at the Muslim community, they pres- which was a school sort of like a su- Sunday school kind of thing uh, with camps and stuff. They taught us that evolution is absolutely incompatible with Islam, right. and they and they showed us the proofs as well. So that really dug into my brain. Like I thought that evolution was a beautiful explanation for how God created things from a single cell. Mm. Created all life from a single cell. But you know, I was ha- I've been presented with this counter argument that all, pretty much all Muslims believe in, which is that human evolution is a lie. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't make any sense to me. It seemed obviously so quite, illogical. So that's kind of
0: ironic in a way that you, you'd found a way to almost square the circle and, and view evolution as kind of compatible with... Yeah, it's with not
2: that faith. hard either. And, they just, actually, and they'd
0: actually taken that away from you.
2: Yeah. yeah, and they'd done it by showing me the proof in the Quran that you know it's not actually compatible. Like, yeah. like you know, the stories that, for example, Noah's Ark—that doesn't make any sense. If if genetics are so important, there'd be genetic bottlenecks that would actually make things impossible. Or Adam and Eve—that's a genetic bottleneck right there. And um, even like the Quran specifically sort of says that things were created, you know, one after the other, sort of, sort of like in Christianity. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure Christianity has a similar uh, creation story. Mm. And mm. also, um, the second big thing in high school was uh, girls. <laughs> to be frank uh also there was a bit of an issue with uh you know the hatred of homosexuals which i'm I'm not gay but i had a teacher who was gay who was one of my my Mm. um like one of the best teachers i had she really paid attention to me but she was a lesbian and she Mm. knew i was highly religious and she would actually encourage me to speak my mind about religion um you know i had an oral presentation about gay marriage and i said i'm i'm for it and she was like like after the speech, he said, "Do you really believe the things that you said?" And I was like, "Well, I'm a bit confused about it." And you know, we had this huge speech about, it, like, this huge uh, heart-to-heart about it. And and regarding girls, like, there were plenty of girls in the Muslim community, but I went to a public school. Every single girl there was non-Muslim. Um, you know, I, I had a crush on this Hindu girl who I really, really liked, and she asked me out. I had to turn her down and tell her, you know, it's it's forbidden in our Oof. religion. Um, and yeah, we continued to be really good friends, but Islamically. We, like I was always guilty about it because like Islamically, you're not even meant to make eye contact with Muslim, with girls, um, let alone Hindu girls. Like she's a, she's a, you know, like a paganist. That's, that's mm. like beyond evil in Islam. Um, but I really liked her. And um, so I was really conflicted you, about that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah you go was say, so
0: you've, got, you've got all these oh. kind of gathering dates, and they're coming together. So what was the moment for you when you suddenly realized, Oh, actually I don't believe this. I, I don't believe well, this faith.
2: So it was kind of related um I think I so it was kind of related to um it wasn't one thing but if it was one thing it would be the whole issue with sexuality in Islam in terms of like I was having a discussion one day at the end of my uni like I I just graduated and I had a lot of time to think about things that I I hadn't really had you know forever mm. um and I was talking to some friends about um you know, they, they were Muslims, like most of them were Muslims who who had girlfriends, essentially. And the other one was like a Christian who had a girlfriend. And I was there saying, you know, like believing that having a girlfriend is forbidden because Islamically, you get married and that's it. You get, and mm-hmm. you only get married. And when you get married, it's you're meeting the girl for the first time, essentially. Or like maybe you've sort of known her from the community, but you didn't really talk because that's forbidden and you kind of met her. Like i was I was basically arguing with them, not really arguing, like I was awkwardly telling them, actually islamically there's there's good reasons like 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 there's good scholarly reasons why um, uh, you're not allowed to date like Allah really mm. really clearly says that this is one of the worst things that you can do is have extramarital relationships, uh, and mm. Muhammad himself was terrified of of um letting women you know he was always warning people you know the worst you know most people in hell uh by far are women because they're promiscuous because they lure men into these kinds of relationships um it's funny how it's always the woman's fault isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah especially in terms of how muhammad describes it that conversation led on to awkwardly talking about sex slaves as well like because at the time isis was the biggest talking point um and you know there's a christian there and he was sort of arguing like what's up with ISIS? And all the Muslims were proudly proclaiming that there's no such concept in Islam as sex slavery. And I was Mm. there being like, awkwardly pointing out again, almost spitefully against myself. Like I I kind of resented Islam at the point, like I was kind of confused and conflicted. I was saying, you know, sex slavery is actually completely permitted. And in fact, most of the the restrictions that are placed on men during regular marriages were explicitly permitted when having sex with a slave. And this was you know, things that I heard during lectures where the sheikhs proudly explained mm. the context, like, like detailed context behind Muhammad uh, encouraging these things. Um, for example, one of them was coitus interrupters. How do we know that coitus interrupters is allowed? Because it's a, there's a situation where men during war were asking, how do we have sex with the sex slaves? after, after Basically raping women after a battle, saying, how do we not get mm. them pregnant? Um, and that was the context. You know, Muslims are always talking about context. That was the context of courageous uh, Interruptors and a lot of the sexual mm. things that we know about Islam were either from Muhammad's child bride who um, detailed these things in her old age or um, you know, the, the, the wartime looting of women, essentially, mm. which were very public affairs, you know. People so had so to come to this... Muhammad and say, can, can I have sex with this woman despite her being married to um, a man who's still alive or you know, I killed her, her, father, and she probably hates me. Um, you know that kind of thing. And Muhammad going, yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> you know, Muslims today say, but, well, they had consent, but these are slaves. Remember, you don't. They were yeah. forced into slavery probably that day. Sometimes, like,
0: uh, yeah. it's it's not really it's not really consent if it's at the point of a sword, is it?
1: Yeah. yeah. Just uh, sorry, don't mean to interrupt, but one thing about that, like what uh, Dean was saying, with the uh, with the context. A lot of these things, they say, oh, well, you know, if you look at the context, but if you actually look at the context and look at the history of these things, the context makes it so much worse. Mm. Um, They talk about Muhammad marrying this Jewish woman. Uh, I think she was a poet, poetess. Yep. Okay, he married her after wiping out her tribe, basically, killing her husband and her father, then marrying her, yeah and then consummating the marriage that night
2: you yeah. some some narrations say it was two nights later, but you know what's the what's the difference there yeah. that night or two nights later um and was still the the sahaba Muhammad's companions were telling him, dude, this is crazy like essentially like uh he, she's going to kill you in your sleep, like if you have sex with her, she's going to kill you in in that tent, and so they were yeah. like um so ra- they were like one of them in particular was essentially pacing around the tent while he had sex with her with his sword in in his hand in case something happened. And there was a struggle because, you know, Muhammad was an old man at this point? He was like 60, maybe 50, 57, probably something
0: like that. There's a whole new definition to unsafe sex. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of crazy. So you basically, all of these kind of like, that was one of the main things for you that, that kind of, that was the day. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That was the day when I drew the line in the sand I went home, I double-checked, like, with, with all the resources I could, you know, books and then researched it online, if what I had said that day was true, you know, the, the, because it seemed like such an obvious conflict, you know. I was talking about sex, well, I was talking about girlfriends and it being forbidden to have sex with girls who you're in love with, but if you kill a woman's father and force her to be your slave, then it's perfectly all right. Uh, and mm. my friends pointed that out, and I was like, wow, that is actually ridiculous, and, and I did one last prayer to God for guidance and stopped practicing Islam.
0: I mean, bringing on to this subject of like, of, of leaving now, I mean, well, and again, maybe some of your own experiences will come into this. What kind of issues do um, ex-Muslims face or perhaps Muslims who are, you know, no longer believe but are still, you know, unable to, to leave um, what issues do they face and how how have they been able to overcome it? And maybe what issues did you face and how and what's what's some what were some tips or or things you did to try and overcome them?
1: The first the first thing I'll say is there's 13 countries in the world where blasphemy and apostasy is punishable by, by death, and they are all Muslim. So yep. that's the mm. first thing that you should know about that. Now, when you come into the context of Western liberal Mm. democracies, um, again, it depends on the country and it depends on the family and it depends on the community. Um, If you're in a very, very strict, let's say, Salafi style community. So, here maybe I'll just stop for a second. Okay, so, you know, sometimes you hear you talk about Muslims or you talk about Islam. So, I mean, the first major split is Shia and Sunni. Mm. Then within Sunni as well, you have the Sufi faith, which is just an offshoot of Sunni. But then you'll have different types of Sunnis. There's, they call them Mahabs, but there's four different Mahabs, which are like schools of thought. Mm. And Salafi is the most strict, and it's the most literal. It's the most literal interpretation. Wahhabism is a form of Salafism. So and then the Hanafi, I believe, is the is the mildest of the Sunni Islam faith. So it just so people like you know, so if you hear different things, mm. yeah, you know, yeah, that's why some some people some people might differentiate between Sunni and Salafi. So it depends on what kind of community you're.
2: And even within those communities, there's plenty diversity. Um, yeah. you know, people with who have absolutely no idea what sect they belong to, they just call themselves Muslim. Mm. Um, that's the
1: most common, I think, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But if you leave, you know, I've heard stories of people. Like I said, I was very lucky, and I'm not the norm, but, I mean, I've heard stories of people uh, being held in a basement and beaten for days. Um, Absolutely. Someone I know, actually, just recently, like this past summer, I believe, and he wrote an article about it. His family, he's gay, and he's an ex-Muslim, and his family asked him to come to Kenya For a wedding, and when he got there, they kidnapped him and put him into uh, conversion therapy. Hmm. Uh, And so, like, there are some harsh.
2: And we we have we, yeah, in the Muslim community in Australia, because I'm involved. Like, I've I've seen people who uh, talk about gay conversion therapy. You know, so it's obviously happening at some level at mosques and things like that. Um, They probably talk about it.
0: It almost sounds like if you're, um, in, 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 the, and obviously people who are, who are Muslim in these areas will know this, if this accurately describes the specific type of community they're in, but it sounds like you almost have to view it as if you're suddenly a kind of an undercover agent in a hostile government. You have to, you have to assume that if you let anything out, you know, any information about what you really think out, it could get you into horrible trouble. So you have to plan yeah, everything yeah. you're going to do very carefully.
2: Especially in the Muslim world. That's definitely true. And even, um, there's even, even in here in the West, there's plenty of consequences uh, because the social structure of Muslim communities and families is really, uh, especially like I said, in post 9 um, 11, with the strong sort of push for a Muslim identity. Um, if you start identifying as not Muslim, your family is likely to firstly excommunicate you, but also try to ruin your life in any way they can, you know, spread rumors mm. about you. Um, you know, like 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 Obeid said, like a lot of the time, if you're living under their care, uh, mm. which a lot of young people, youngest Muslims do, they'll uh, send you to conversion therapies, or they'll, uh, you know, very common thing is exorcisms, um, which is which can be mm-hmm. pretty horrific, especially for girls. Like you know, um, because 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 of the nature of the Islamic uh, gender segregation, all the people who who administer these things are men. And, uh, so there's a lot of abuse that occurs in that, in that, um, space.
0: So is it almost the case of like some advice you could give for, and again, in in a way that this is advice sometimes we give to Jehovah's witnesses who realize that they're, you know, they're not, they're, they're in a, they're in a cult rather than the one true religion is don't do anything rash, sit down and actually plan out carefully what you're going to do before you do it. Because if you just stand up and say, by the way, I've decided I don't believe this anymore there could be a whole freight train of hurt coming your way. So maybe you need to sit down and plan, okay, maybe I'm going to need to leave home first. So I'm going to need to plan to get a job, or maybe I'm going to need to build, set up a social circle if I can outside of my faith community. So maybe can I gradually start talking to work colleagues? Can I start making maybe some contacts some friends that way? And gradually, would it be, would it be the case that, and obviously I appreciate that, like you said, there is a vast Muslim community across the globe. So this isn't going to be the community experience for all Muslims. But if they are yeah. in that more restrictive, it might be like, okay, rather than make a rash move and just stand up and declare my atheism, it might be good to sit down and just carefully plan and build toward that day where I where I step away. Would that yeah. be good advice? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah,
1: that would that, be good. But, I mean, one thing I, I've said to a couple of people is, you know, whatever advice I give, my advice is always – because, I you know, I was speaking to people and I've <sighs> – Especially recently, I, I've become a little bit more involved, and I've spoken to people who mm-hmm. are living double lives. Right? They they don't believe, but then they practice around their family, and it's 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 really stressful. I mean, you, so the people that you're closest with, and they're supposed to give you the most support and the most care, are the ones you can't be true with, right? So mm-hmm. it's really hard. To, yeah. But I've told everyone like it's you know your family. Like I'm my opi- I'm of the opinion that it's in the long run it'll be better for yourself, but obviously. I'm not going to advise someone to put themselves in danger. I'm not going to advise someone to, you know, mm. you're 18 years old, you've just started university, your parents are paying for school, and then you're cut off. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not going to advise someone to do that, knowing that it's going to cause them harm. So it's like, you know your family, you know what their reactions will be better than anyone else, right? So mm. take that into consideration. But like you said, yes, do plan it out. Um, you know, get a job and make some money put it aside, go speak to counselors at school about, you know, if you're in school about financial aid and things like that. And Um, try to, try to give yourself um,
2: the space to, to plan these things out. Like, don't, don't think you have to make a decision immediately just because you feel like, like you're in that environment. Um, And also, also Mm. like most importantly, maybe um, reach out to other people who are in the same situation you're in, Um, especially being an ex-Muslim. It is a silenced, um, minority, um, mm. it's, and that makes it feel like you genuinely are completely alone. But you know, obviously, if, if 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 you're if 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 you know that there's people out there, which which obviously, knowing the internet, you know, being listening to this podcast, we mm. do um, reach out to those people. If there isn't a community in your local area, try to build it. Try to create it. Mm. Just because, in my experience, from, from from I had about three months where I was just completely alone. Uh, and I had online forums, but I was just getting angrier and angrier. I, I met up with the Australian ex-Muslim group. Pretty much immediately, things started to get better. They started to just slowly, I started to vent to them. They started to t- give me advice. You know, these are people I was meeting up in person as well a lot of the time. Mm. And it like, I, I think if anything helped me, it was just having people who could help me with the little things. And big things too, but, you know, those little things that, I just didn't know how to deal with my on my own, and it was so specific a lot of the time. So I think really find other people is, is a big thing.
0: To, to drill down on that a little bit, because I mean I, I agree. I mean being able to speak with people who've been through your same experience is amazing. I mean and for XJWs as well, there's there's a huge online XJW community, and being able to talk to other people to convince you know you're not the only one who's going through this, and you know know you're not crazy. Um, and also yeah. to get people, people who've gone through it and can actually give you advice, or well, I tried this and it worked really well, or I tried this and it really didn't work, so maybe don't do that. I wanted to drill down. What's on the ex- is there is there like an online? And you said there's an ex-Muslim group in Australia. Is that like a meetup thing, or is it like an online? Community? No, it's
2: very it's very strict with ex-Muslim groups. It has to be very strictly regulated, so okay. it's difficult to get in. But you know, even finding it was very really difficult for me because um, I had yeah. heard whispers about it you know, like I said, there were three months where I was basically looking online for people, um, in yeah. Australia. <laughs> and, and, um, the first website you find when you look up Australian ex-Muslims is actually run by uh, a white atheist who's never been like Muslim in their life. <laughs> and when you email him, he doesn't know, like, I have no idea where he set up the page, but like, he doesn't know what, what it's all about. Like, like he's, he's a funny enough guy and all that, but he's not actually an ex-Muslim. So, um, that really confused me. Um, but if you, if you want to find them, um, go on the ex-Muslim forums, the, the Reddit forums. But also – just that's where in, we're most active.
1: Uh, in North America, there's two principal groups, I'd like to say maybe. There's ex-Muslims in North America, which is purely for ex-Muslims. And again, like Dean was saying, they have a very strict screening process and you know they won't just let anyone in. So if you're questioning, it's not the place to go. Mm. But if you go on their website – you know, they do have videos of people who've left Islam. They have, um, you know, testimonials and things like that. And you can get some information there. There's another one in North America called Muslimish. And Muslimish is for people who have left Islam, people who are questioning, and people who are kind of on the fence. Mm-hmm. So if you're questioning Islam, Muslimish, and you're in North America, Muslimish is a good place to maybe go I know in the UK they have this thing called Faith to Faithless. Yes. Which is kind of like... Um, and there's a council of ex-Muslims as well. Yeah. But the council of ex-Muslims is you know, ex-Muslim again, but Faith to Faithless is all faiths, right? So they have uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Orthodox Jews, Mormons, ex-Muslims. Um, you could yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've actually I've, I've actually uh,
0: met a few of the Faith to Faithless team. Um, and I've, yeah. I've been involved yeah. with them doing a couple of things, and they're really... Yeah. I'm going to try and get a couple of them on for a later podcast because yeah. it's
2: a similar... MTS was, was in Australia like, uh, a couple months ago and like, he was such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Like he, like we had a couple of meetups with him, actually a lot of meetups Like mm-hmm. every day. He was here pretty much. <laughs> he was such a nice guy. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm uh, going
0: yeah. to I'm gonna try and get MTS on the podcast because it's that interesting yeah, really bridge of between that, that forum where you can not only get... You can get X's of all faiths and you start to see the commonalities in the experience and also the differences.
1: Yeah, yeah. But Which I mean, also, uh, another thing now, too, I mean, with the web, it's great. So, I mean, if you go on YouTube and just type in ex-Muslim, yep. you'll see all kinds of videos of people talking about it, why they've done it, their stories, and, you know, so you can see, then you can might start saying, okay, well, you know, there's all these people, they all have, and obviously everyone's story is going to be individual themselves, but there's there are going to be certain things that resonate, right? Like, mm. you know, yep. uh." Like, in my case, it was science, and a lot of people was. Uh, like, with Dean's it case, it was, like, you know, the sexuality and, like, the mistreatment of other people and whatever. You know, you, you'll start seeing similarities, and you'll say, okay, well, and then maybe if you're questioning something, one of these people was questioning it, or they're, and you'll all even find, like, you know, ex-Muslims going through Quranic verses and talking through it. And that's one of the things, and it's, like, one of the things Dean had brought up. Only about 20% of the Muslim world speaks Arabic. Right? Yeah. So the Quran mm-hmm. is written in Arabic. So the Quran is only the Quran in Arabic. Any translation is a pale copy. Okay. So you have to learn the Quran in Arabic. You have to pray in Arabic. You don't understand. Like, I never understood a goddamn word I was saying. Like I did not read the Quran <laughs> in a language that I understood, and I was taking the stories from my parent and mother and the people you know the the, the 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 people who taught me how to read the quran i was taking their stories they were telling me the stories and they were telling me what the quran meant but they themselves really didn't know it because they didn't understand it so like you'll see a video you'll see videos of in toronto or in montreal a couple of them came out last year where the imams are just like after the friday prayers they do like a sermon they call it a khutbah right mm-hmm. so they're just repeating the stuff right of the quran and the, the people are just going. I mean, I mean, I mean, and they don't know what they're saying. And it's when you see the the translation underneath because like the videos came out with subtitles, and it's yo. Know, there's one that's talking about killing all the Jews on Judgment Day, and how the trees yeah. and the the rocks will say, "Look, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come kill him." Yeah,
2: yeah, that's a big one. I, I see that everywhere. I'm telling you. My, my my um, sorry to cut you off, but like um, I, I went to a local mosque and and the imam that was supposed to be like i heard really great things about him he's really nice he's really the way he speaks is so peaceful and he was giving that thing about you know the jew will be hiding behind the tree and i was like these people just don't care about the jews like they just don't sympathize that's why they don't see the the horrific nature of what this guy's saying like
1: i don't know Uh, so so i mean i mean it's that's one of the biggest problems like um i've had my family you know tell me well well, if you don't speak Arabic, you can't really understand the Quran. So you, you can't really say that you've left it because you don't understand it. Well enough. Mm. I've just turned around to them and said, well, then I guess that means 80% of Muslims aren't really Muslim because they don't speak yeah. Arabic <laughs> and they don't understand the Quran enough to be really Muslim. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what they're basically saying. Right. Um, and, and on that topic as well, like I, I worked overseas quite a bit. And one of the places I was, was Bosnia. I spoke to the Muslims in Bosnia and they, you know, Bosnian Muslims, especially, like, this was in the early 2000s, and they were not really that strict. Yeah. They were more strict about not eating pork, but they were fairly relaxed about everything else. Alcohol. Yeah, but they, yeah. you know, they were resentful in some ways that the only way they could practice their faith was to learn another language. Like, not all of them said things like that, but a mm-hmm. few, quite yeah. a few of the ones that I'd mm-hmm. met, and obviously this is anecdotal, but you know, so quite a few of the ones I'd met were not that didn't sit well with them that they couldn't practice their faith in their own language yeah and I mean, and, that, and that's one of the big flaws of it is because well if god is all knowing and you know, all why can't i just pray to him in english why can't i pray to him in bosnian why can't i yeah. pray to him in french he should know that right he yeah. should know the what's more my you heart.
2: The, the more you look into it the more you realize that this really is an arab religion it's it's it the amount of praise uh, muhammad had or you know allah has for um, Arab culture, Arab um, the Arab Arabic language, um, the Arab people is is really it really shows how 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 um, and, and at times it also criticizes it. But it's so Arab centric, um, like like that's one of my issues as well. Like clearly from a certain place to a certain people, even though it claims to be to everyone, it actually wants to be on to come on
0: to actually to another topic um yeah sure which the podcast you guys run heretics corner which as we've said is is this this really great show which is basically all about discussing these issues and getting them out into the open and finding out how apostates can be helped and how they can help themselves what was what was the genius what was the kind of the the original idea that got you guys to put the show together so how did you kind of spin up the first couple of episodes and what's the goal of the show
1: okay well that's actually uh Nolly, who unfortunately yeah, is not with us. <laughs> she, she's had a lot of stuff going on, so she's not been able to uh join us lately. But she put out a tweet, and I'd been thinking about i would be humming and honking about a podcast. She put out a tweet saying, Are there any other ex who'd like to do a podcast with me? So I got a hold of her, and then we started talking. And then Nolly got a hold of Dean. Um,
2: yeah, and, and we're we're kind of we're both Australians, uh, we're part of the ex Muslim community here, that's how I know her, and um. I talked to her about starting a podcast as well. So I think uh, like we kind of, and we we kind of had like our own group, like a Facebook group as well for a while, like an ex-Muslim Facebook group. Like I think it was ex-Muslims of Australia and New Zealand like a couple of years ago. She kind of convinced me. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, I mean, we started it up and I mean, our idea and still like what we'd like to try to do is um, we're, you know, reaching out to other people of other faiths and, We've had on, I mean, we've had on mainly ex Muslims, but um, we've had on, I mean, you were on, and then we had on an uh, ex evangelical Christian. Um, We've had on a, actually, one of them, Jen was, she grew up Mormon. No. No. Okay. Yeah, she grew grew up Mormon, but part of her family was Syrian, so she had a Muslim side of her family, and then she converted to Islam, so she is. An ex Mormon and an ex Muslim. Um, So there's that. And then we spoke, like we had on um, Yasmin Muhammad and uh, Jimmy Bagnash, who's Yasmin's in Canada and Jimmy's in London. And Yasmin started up this organization called Free Hearts, Free Minds Mm. that helps um, apostates or atheists and questioning. Uh, Muslims in, or I guess questioning religious people, basically. Well, mainly It's Muslim in the, in the Middle East and or Muslim-majority countries, and helps them with life coaching and things like that. Mm. And one of the other people we also had on, um, it's Dr. Marlene Wannell. She does, she's in the States, and she does, um, she provides counseling. She's ex-evangelical and an ex-missionary. Well, her family was missionary. And she provides basically counseling and therapy, treating apostates like you would treat someone with PTSD. Mm. And so, I mean, we were, you know, so we, our, our whole idea was basically that just let's have people on, discuss their issues, try to show a common thread between, you know, all the, all extreme faiths, let's just say, Mm. and what, you know, type of things you have to go through. So, I mean, one thing that's common is shunning. Yeah. You know, you, you get cut off from, family and friends and loved ones and you know it's it's really hard you, you're totally alone um you know like i said it's people that should be the closest to you who just cut yeah. out of their lives and, and um yeah i think we had sarah hide on
2: although i wasn't there for that one uh that was the most recent episode i think oh no wait it was actually with you
1: yeah <laughs> yeah with uh, <laughs> yeah, sarah was that kind of lucky because she didn't have a lot of time
2: yeah and um like uh it's kind of related to that um, I'm planning on, um, starting on my own YouTube channel, just doing sort of, whereas heretics corner is more discussions, more, uh, you know, we're talking about, we're interviewing people usually, or maybe we're just talking about our own issues. Uh, I want to talk more about, um, the perspective of like, like an ex-Muslim perspective in short videos, uh, and sort of a less ranty, <laughs> more succinct and meeting so so sort of running down the reasons why well actually exploring multiple different issues. I, I have like so many notes on on, on video ideas. Um and that's gonna be under uh, my my online alias, which is uh the red multad. So it's R E D M U R T A D. Yeah, we'll we'll pop a link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably set up the social media um like most of it's set up already, but I'll I'll link it to you. Um yeah, I'm really hoping to. I really think it's important to do, this, do these kind of things because, you know, myself, especially at the beginning, like the first year or so, of leaving Islam, I I kept wanting to have that reassurance from 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 other people, and not just one source or, um, you know, some random article online or, you know, so especially when it comes from like people who've never been Muslim. Like a lot of the criticism of Islam is from people who've never been Muslim. You you do kind of rebuild that doubt and and it's not even doubt it's almost like you're just thinking are they right you're trying to assess if they're right and you just don't have the mental resources to go through every single accusation that all you ex-muslims you don't pay you're just you know like you're just doing it for 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 the (laughs) for the joy of of of, uh leaving islam and all that so um so yeah I, i really do think it's important to have these um assessments of religion and why we believe it and why it's unhealthy, and also just updates. For example, like um, like there's a lot of people who do like Abdullah Samir, Vido um, Vid, um, Hassan Radwan, who I think is Vido Vid's uh, father-in-law. Um, they do like sort of personal, a couple of personal updates here and there, which I found actually really really helps me. If I'm in a really bad mood and I see one of those videos pop up, it really helps me to see someone else talk about. Something, uh, but it's about an external perspective for, that I've never that that sometimes isn't even really something that I've had. But like you know, I can recognize that we're part of this community. We're part of this. These people who have things in common.
0: And yeah, <laughs> well, it's interesting because that, that that concept of like you said, there's a lot of there's a lot of material and information available to help people analyze a faith and, and leave it. I mean, I know for Jehovah's Witnesses, there's lots of there's lots of material out there on why the JW faith is flawed. And I think one yeah. of the one of the real drives now that I'm, that we really need, I think, generally across the whole kind of in inverted commas apostate community from all faiths, is the aftercare aspect, which you guys have been talking about. You know, it's like you've worked out the faith. Isn't true, and you've left it. But now what? Because it can very often leave people. They might end up shunned. They might end up with my. You know, I've been cut off from the source of income.
2: Yeah, and it's not just that. It's it's also like uh, there's issues that stem from from before you. Like while you are a believer, you, you 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 rack up these issues. Um, you know mm-hmm. things like like you, you you and you might not even be aware that there's certain things that you feel are written in stone about your personality. But it actually boils down to your beliefs. And over time, you you. you like it, could, it can take you time to let go of those things. For example, childhood, emotional neglect. A lot of the time, these things come hand in hand with uh, um, having issues with the faith. Um, depression, anxiety, very common issues amongst ex um mm-hmm. Suicidal tendencies as well. Um, it's very, very common. Luckily, it's something that I didn't have. But I do think it's something that we really need to talk more about as, yeah. as sort of people who left the faith yeah
0: and i think i think as well helping professionals to understand what the specific issues apostates exactly. go through which is one thing faith the faithless i know they're really focusing on and they've done workshops with police uh, forces and with with other government institutions who provide care to help them understand the specific issues that apostates might have so the police may not fully understand shunning or they may not fully understand certain aspects or or, or you know care workers or mental health workers may not understand some of the specific aspects that can come out of being raised in a very controlling, very um, extremist version of a faith and having greater understanding, I think for those professionals. And that's why like, programs like faith to faithless and others, I think are doing amazing work because it's bringing that conversation out into the open and helping those who provide care to not only kind of like understand on a general basis, but actually understand specific issues that can come out of someone being raised in a very strict controlling religion and, you know, the damage that, yeah, that can yeah, lead So yeah. even if they've left that religion, it doesn't mean that they've left that damage behind.
2: Yeah. And they're amazing for that. Like Faith to Faith is, I've, I've watched, I think I've watched pretty much everything that they've released. And um, same, same thing with ex-Muslims of North America. Every time they release a video, I'm just amazed by how much it connects with me. And to summarize what my advice to people who left the faith in general is, you know, get a job, get as independent as possible. Try not to, to be too brash. But also try to be honest with yourself, and and it's it's sort of like a how I think of it is a negotiation with your parents, with your, with your family, with your um, loved ones. I don't know. Some people have spouses and things like that. And also, um, on top of that, you know, just try try to deal with your mental health issues because, like I said, it might have no, It might seem like something that has nothing to do with religion, but because you were in that environment where these things are kind of a given like you know neglect and certain types of abuse and it can be so like we can neglect our own needs and and uh identifying our own feelings and letting go and things like that uh and one of the things that like very easy thing that you can do uh, regardless of, of what situation you're in is exercise try to spend time outside outdoors if, if possible in greenery you know for me that helps or journaling like i, I know you mentioned that in your podcast in the past um
1: <laughs> yeah it really does help there's just one thing though and it's in the in the climate that we have right now and it's getting worse i find sometimes there, there's a thing in islam called Siratul al which is the straight path <laughs> but it's also yeah narrow path so it's the straight path where you're walking you're walking the straight path but it's very it's like you're walking on a razor's edge on you can fall into sin, yeah you can fall into sin on either side mm. but as an ex-muslim and if you're trying to talk about and, it, and again it, this varies from person to person there's some who have gone so far as an ex-muslim that they're just anti-islam right they that they're mm. It's not like they're talking about secular values or anything like that. But yeah. if you are an ex-Muslim and you want to talk about secular values, you want to talk about if people, someone wants to practice their faith, and as long as they don't bother me, I don't really care, you know. But when you try to, you know, I don't want to see my family hurt, I don't want to see, you know, friends hurt. Mm. So when you try to walk that line, from one side you're getting, you know, you're a white supremacist, racist, Islamophobe, blah, 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 blah. Then from the other side, you're getting, well, you're a stealth jihadi, you're not doing, you know, and it's, Mm. it's like, no, look, okay, I'll I'll give you an example of this. Uh, We had a new premier uh, elected in the province of Quebec, 1st of October. One of the first things he said he was going to do was he was going to ban all public servants from wearing religious symbols. I first Mm. heard this, I was like, okay. And then I thought about it because he brought in secularism and then he brought in a French term called laiste. Laïcité is – a lot of people just equate it with secularism. It goes a little bit stronger than secularism. Secularism is just a separation of church and state, mm-hmm. and you know, religion doesn't mix in politics, and you can't make any policy decisions based on a faith, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. laïcité goes even further to say that the government will not pass a law impeding any religion. It's kind of implied in the secularism the way it is in the United States, but when you talk about the First Amendment – but Laiste goes to that point. So if this guy's talking about Laiste, I don't care if I walk into a room or if I walk into a government office and I'm getting my driver's license renewed or something like that, and there's a woman wearing his job, or there's a someone wearing a crucifix or a Star of David or a Keepah or a Sikh turban or anything like that. As long as they're not like that woman in the States, uh, Kim Davis, who denied the gay couple a marriage license, right? That is then a government official imposing their religion on someone. But this guy, okay, and like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to take a little bit of time with this. What he also did, it was there's a giant, in the, in one of the conference of the National Assembly of Quebec, it's our legisl- provincial legislature. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I can't take that crucifix down because even though that's a religious symbol, it's part of our history. And then he said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ban the hijab first, and then I'll go on to other religions. So it's like, okay, this is not a secular thing, then you are targeting Muslims.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. And. You know, some some people are saying, and I know Muslims who say, oh, well, this is great. It's, it's part of secularism. I'm like, no, it's not. I oppose the hijab. I think the hijab is completely wrong. But, you know, if someone says that's their choice, I can try to discuss with them why they think it's their choice. But I don't want to force them to stop wearing it. Where I kind of draw the line is the niqab. And even then, if it was just saying, okay, we're going to ban the niqab, I don't want that. If you was to say, okay, we will not allow anyone who is in public service, and I agree with this, no one in public service should serve someone if their face is covered, and no one should go into a public service place, and that includes banks and things like that or a school, and demand service without showing your face. Yeah,
0: I think it's, it's the, 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 I think I've, um, I think, was it Marjit Noir's summed up as saying that a good way of handling it would be any place you can't wear a ski mask.
1: If you just ban all face coverings for people who serve the public and you, yeah. people who are requiring those services, then you're fine. But, you know, they tried that back and everyone was up in arms. Oh, it's a nikah ban. No, the ban was specifically stated, no facial coverings if you're asking for public service, which I think is legitimate. Um, yeah. but like I said, I, that's, that's kind of a lot where I draw the line. But you know, So you have to be like I said, ex-Muslims in, in, are in that precarious place because especially nowadays where, you know, if you say anything against someone who's perceived to be an oppressed class, well, you're you're oppressing them. And it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that, you know, when they talk about lived experience, it's, but my lived experience apparently doesn't count for anything. Dean's lived experience apparently doesn't count for anything, you know, because we were not never really true Muslims or whatever. And this is coming from people who were, you know, this is coming from, and I call them benevolent bigots because it's exactly what they are. You know, they—they they think they're trying to do good, but they're not. Yeah. And it's just, you know,
2: and and uh, but but even with those people, like I'll be honest with you, I've met I've met so many of those people. They annoy the hell out of me, but I still try to um, talk to them and, and reason with them. And I think I've had a couple, like like uh, one of my na- uh, one of my friends is what, like, kind of like that. And uh, yeah, like like <laughs> sorry, I don't want to give give away details, but but essentially yeah, we kind of have a, have a better friendship now than we did before because we kind of worked through that. Like, she understands that being ex-Muslim is this minority within a minority, but, but she was just completely ignorant of that before. She was just assuming, okay, well, if you're criticizing Islam, it must be that you've got some some some, some like love for white nationalism or something like that, you know what I mean? I think it really is ignorance.
1: In, in, um, yeah, but, uh, it. It's also like when you bring up ex-Muslim, you try to bring up some issues, and they're like, "Well, you know, not all Muslims are terrorists." Okay, terrorism is is horrible, and it's you know it's it's the most visceral thing you'll see. Yeah. But you know, there's so many other things that are problems, like like what know was talking about, like other issues. Okay. Gender
2: segregation.
1: Segregation of, men, you know, segregation of men and women.
2: Mm.
1: It's yeah, so it's bad. You know, I, I'll you tell like boys you. Don't, yeah, boys don't know how to react with women, you know, yeah. with girls. Girls don't know how to react uh, with boys.
2: And there's a sheikh. Sorry. Sorry, something happened very recently. Um, uh, someone I know is getting married. Um, we're trying to organize the wedding, but the sheikh has to uh, officiate it, like, you know, to make it legal. But we're having this massive issue where we can't – because the sheikh is the kind of guy who, if he sees a, a woman, even a Muslim woman in full niqab, and he teaches them – he won't make eye contact. He will look at the ground because this is what Muhammad used to do, apparently. This is what Muhammad used to tell people to do. And he'll turn his face away from them while they're talking to him. And at this wedding, we're planning on having, like, people who are non-Muslims, you know, they'll be wearing, like, low-cut shirts and, like, I don't, I don't know, like, whatever the, whatever they're, they're wearing. It's, like, a it's like typical of non-Muslims that they wouldn't stick to Islamic modesty mm. standards, right? And so, like, we like, like, uh, my family can't, can't fathom putting him in the same room as people wearing like regular Western clothes because, because they so, because him and his family are so used to being in that pose environment. And we just protect that. We protect that, that close-minded mentality of his, even though we don't share it, like that's the bizarre thing. Like my family doesn't exactly share that mentality, even though they all wear hijab and stuff, you know, they still respect people who wear it they you know, they'll make eye contact with women. They shake hands with women sometimes. But, I think can
0: illustrate. No, it's sort of illustrate. I think, the issue that there's there's one a unique, it seems to be fairly unique to it, the ex-Muslim experience, is that you end up trapped on, in a way that other faiths are not. You end up almost like trapped on this political tightrope, where because mm-hmm. of because of external factors in the world today with, regarding politics and issues that are going on, you're kind of you know, there are other, you sort of like you You said, there are people who will take any criticism of Islam as bigotry. Uh, and you'll also get people who will um, expect ex-Muslims to, you know, want to turn on on Muslims um, because of the fact, you know, what they came from. It feels like it's an extra, I mean, to a degree, Jehovah's Witnesses have a little bit of this in that I've seen people who leave the Witness faith who then, you know, for example, at the moment there, the Jehovah's Witnesses are banned in Russia, and and Putin's kind of basically brutalizing that community. There's some witnesses are on trial, and they're facing up to ten years in prison simply for being Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. And i have seen some ex-witnesses basically applaud this and cheer it on and say, "Yes, we need to do everything uh, we can to get this religion." Yeah, yeah. And to it's me, I'm like, well, really
2: yeah. I mean, I, I, do that, but for the most part, people kind of discourage it. Yeah, and I think
0: it's 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 an example of as you were saying, walking that it's, and I think all faiths have, you know, all exes, all apostates have to kind of walk that line between, yeah. between getting poor, but especially for ex-Muslims, I, I feel it must be very difficult.
2: Yeah. You guys and it's have also like our communities well. are so, sorry, our community is so tight knit that like, it, it almost does feel like a betrayal if you start saying those kinds of things. Um, mm. And it is, it is in, in a way, especially if it's unnecessary, like, you know, like, um, uh, like a couple of the things that I want to talk about in my videos uh, that I'm planning on releasing are um, uh, you know the, the situation the situations uh, that are oppressing Muslims today especially from an atheist perspective like if you look at Muslims in Western China it is absolutely mm. inhuman how the how the Chinese government is treating the Muslims there yeah like, them, um, you know sending families to concentration camps essentially um, and yeah. they might not be uh, expressly killing them, although there are people that that have been executed and stuff like that, but but it's still like this 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 deep yeah. oppression that that will at the end of the day um, not work in anyone's favor. You know, the Muslims will actually get galvanized in that in that position as they always do. You know, look at Bosnia, look at any country that's been oppressed, Afghanistan, but by, by non-Muslims, um, and Muslims have. United and galvanized, they've got even more strict in their beliefs. Uh, mm. So, so like, like I, I really feel like, like, like um, that kind of thing is so in every single way it's antithetical to uh, secular values and humanist values. And and we really need to speak up more about it. I really intend to speak up more about it as well personally.
1: Yeah, like, okay, getting back to the China thing, right? So, like when that first broke, because it got really big lately but i mean it, it first broke a few months back and when i was talking about it and i you know, like okay i don't have huge following or anything but i was tweeting it out and and people are like oh well that's what they deserve i'm like excuse me and yeah. when i'm defending mm-hmm. them it's like well why are you defending their muslims i'm always like, no i'm defending people i'm defending their their, their yeah, right and- to, you know you know practice their faith as long as they're not imposing it on other people I mean,
0: you guys have been very generous with your time, so I don't want to keep you in any longer because you're sat in a car, Dean, and you're, you're kind of, I was just going to say, if, we can, if there's oh, we one go, thing, quick piece of advice you give to, um, uh, a Muslim who's just waking up and realizing that they may not be in the one true religion. What would it be?
1: Uh, read, read everything you can. Um, uh, Read the Quran in a language you understand. Read the Hadith in a language you understand. Um, when it when there's claims that are made, go find other sources. Um, so, okay, there's a there's a verse in the Quran about the sperm is formed between the ribs and the backbone. Okay, if you find that little bit of doubt, like the, the sperm is not found in the rib, between the ribs and the backbone. Quran talks about jinns and witches and possession as if it's real. you know so find little things like like it's just read it and look at it like there um, a little bit of doubt goes a long way. and once you start saying that it's if, if it's supposed to be the perfect word of God, everything should be true and right. and if you start finding things in it that crack, then you know just just follow that, that logic.
2: Okay. Yep. Cool. Um, for me, um, it's really difficult to say one thing, but you know, I, I really be, be focused on the safety of, of the individual um, in particular. Um, you, like, like, like we mentioned before, you really need to pace yourself. You really need to be patient and make, if, if it helps, take notes, break down um, what you're facing in whatever scenario you have, like in terms of family, in terms of financial independence, Um, And this is especially for young people Um, and really um, don't be brash, but, but also, um, you know, you know, uh, be honest with yourself. Uh, um, It's hard to, to acknowledge after after living faith, one of the hardest things to do is have that balance of, you know, I'm angry at these people. I feel like I've wasted my time. I feel like my family is just crazy And you don't know if, if and and that kind of thought process can can drive you even further into um, mental health issues. So it's important to Mm -hmm. slow down and take note and pace yourself and come up with a plan, talk to people. Um, I know this isn't one thing, but yeah, um, (laughs) that's my advice. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's good advice
0: thank you so um where can we find more of your work online if people want to follow what you're doing and catch up with with um the latest developments in the world of heretics corner
1: uh on twitter it's at heretics corner if you go on youtube check for heretics corner um we're like i said we're we're still kind of starting out so we're a little bit hit and miss right now but hopefully we can get everything together um yeah um and also um for for me
2: um <laughs> I, i'm pretty active in the ex-muslim community but it's, it's anonymous stuff um you might find me on the reddit forums um the reddit ex-muslim forums um but yeah if you want to follow me on twitter it's at the red mortal i think um actually i'll just send you my social social media yeah. links so yeah I'll, the I'll put them all in the notes yeah. um but yeah i'm my online alias is the Red Mortad. Uh, my name is Dean, um, and yeah, I'll be coming up with a lot more videos and content, and maybe even um, you know forum posts and things like that in the future. So look out for it.
0: Cool. So, Obed and Dean of the Heretics Corner. Thank you very much for yeah. coming on the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. You very much. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, noticed you didn't talk much. Like we, we, we should have had some interview questions for you. I feel like <laughs> we'll, we'll have, have to do this again at definitely. some
0: point. I'll have to, I'll have to see if we can get you guys back on and, uh, and keep the discussion yeah. going. time, Thanks. Cool. So guys, I hope you found that, uh, informative and useful. Uh, yeah. Let me know if you enjoyed it because ideally I'd like to continue getting exes from other faiths and other groups onto the show. I think it's fascinating to to examine the, the commonalities and the differences in the journeys we all take and also in the methods that people use to kind of put their lives back together after they left, which is really the theme of what this podcast is about. You know, it's not so much about leaving. It's about how you reconstruct once you've left. And I think there's a lot of interesting lessons we can learn from exes from all faiths about that. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, And if you did, there are many ways you can support it. You can uh, leave us a star review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you listen to. You can follow me on Twitter at Covert Fade. Uh, You can also check out my YouTube channel, which is uh, search search YouTube for Covert Fade or track me down. We've got uh, YouTube versions of the podcast on that channel, plus some additional content that's uh, YouTube specific only. So you can give us a subscribe on there if you like. If you'd like to support us financially, uh, you can do so on Patreon.com slash CovertFade, where in return for as little as $1 a month, you can get access to all sorts of uh, funky rewards and extras, uh, little audio clips, video clips, um, my thoughts and ramblings on other things, plus early access to forward cast episodes, and for the higher tier subscribers, even birthday and Christmas cards. So there's, if you're curious, head over to Patreon and uh, take a look. But to be honest, if you enjoy the show, the best way you can thank us is just to have a think about what you want your life to be, work out a plan to get there, and put that plan into action. Because at the end of the day, we all only get one life. We can't change what happened in the past, but we can change the future. So decide what you want your future to be, get out there, and work your butt off to make it happen. Take care, guys. We'll see you on the next episode.